Coming up on Leading Edge. Charisma is slowly becoming the cancer of leadership. So I much prefer the leader that is deeply aware of all the consequences and circumstances they have to face and have that capacity to listen, but most of all, help other people listen too. This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. Welcome to Leading Edge, a new podcast from Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason, and in this series, we'll be equipping you with the latest tools and management thinking to thrive in the workplace of 2030 and beyond. We'll be tackling topics as varied as gig leadership or taking turns at the tiller, how to keep staff engaged at work, how to improvise when there is no plan, why diversity is not only skin deep, and what to do when you realise that you're working for a robot. Joined today by Andrew Kakabadzi, Professor of Governance and Leadership at Henley Business School. Andrew has advised governments as far afield as Southeast Asia, Australia, Georgia and the Gulf states, played a role in the Northern Ireland peace process and until only very recently was advising the British government on the future of the civil service. I'm sure we'll come back to that later, but he's here with me to talk about the topic Bored to Death, Why Companies Fail. And before you ask, that's board, spelt B-O-A-R-D. See what I did there. Andrew, welcome to Leading Edge. Thank you very much, Thomas. Great pleasure to be here. Lovely to have you. And the topic then we're tackling today, this is focusing on company boards and why communication between senior management and boards is not what it should be. Now, Andrew, this boils down really to companies failing, you think, a lot of them, because people within them are not listening to each other. What do you mean by this? Sometimes they're not listening to each other, Thomas, and sometimes they have a very different point of view. The leadership at the top is about making decisions about resources. Why should this company go and invest here? Why should it go one direction versus another? And when I sit with boardrooms and top teams, each of the arguments put forward, funnily enough, on their own, make a lot of sense. Each of those arguments are usually evidence-based, so people have thought about it. But when you put them all together... They don't uh, integrate. They don't ring true. So what we have in a very mature market where competition is really intense and you just have to make that small marginal difference is you have a situation where tension and conflict are going to be rife. And the reason is competitive advantage. What is the competitive advantage of this firm? Six months ago, it might have been this. Things have changed in the market. Are we adaptable enough? Are we quick enough to make that difference? Funnily enough, the colleagues are, but they don't agree. And that's the point. And you've got some quite alarming statistics, haven't you? Almost three quarters of companies just not facing up to problems, even if they know they have them. What's even more alarming, Thomas, is 100% of boards and top teams that I've come across absolutely know the nature of the problems they've got, the challenges they face, the strengths they've got. It's not all negative. Some of it is very positive. But then comes the difficult issue of perhaps confronting the chairman, uh, challenging the CEO, challenging a particular doctrine that has been pushed through, and for good reason, by the way. But now you get a sense things have changed so much. If we continue down this road, we will have a problem. So the official statistic that emerged is 100% know their problems, 67% don't talk about them. And what does that mean? Just continued slow deterioration. It does sound quite alarming, doesn't it? And some companies, they fail, they go bust. 
but I believe you think that there's quite a significant number of companies that just sort of limp on. They they may not fail, but they're, they're, they're juggernauts. They don't they don't stop immediately. And it's the limping on that's the real problem. At least with failure, we've got some assets which go back into the marketplace. We can reposition them. We can sell them. We can buy them. At least we can rejuvenate them. It's the ones that just continue to fumble forwards. That's the problem, because we may have thousands of people in the company. We may have new developments taking place in Europe, America, just down the street. And there's this company really just existing on brand name, which means it's living in the past. So we have thousands of people locked into a way forward, which actually is driven by past thinking. That's tragic. Let's look then. You've got a few examples of some some of those high-profile failures. Maybe tell us a bit more about where they went wrong and when the writing was on the wall. If you go back to the Enron days, which is 30 years plus Marconi days, essentially the message is exactly the same. X number of top managers knew the place was going wrong. 200, for example. 60 to 80. I remember with one company, the top 60 managers had a meeting with the chairman, basically saying that the third acquisition, which was going to bankrupt them, was not the one to go. And they had such a frustration that they walked out of the chairman's meeting into their dining room and began to vent. Vent to the point where they began to bet which week we're going to go bankrupt. And the pot was over £10,000. And that took minutes to achieve. One guy won it. It was 65 months into the future. All the other people that put their name forward were 63, 62, 67, 66, all within a five-month margin. Right, yeah. This is serious. Serious but slow. Serious but slow. And what we found was the 65-month predictive, true predictive nature held for other companies as well. So what we've got is people facing problems and they become slowly paralysed. That's the problem. And the big question mark for leadership is, how do we get all that ability and all that talent to now rejuvenate itself, reposition itself, so that we can move forward? I think the most tragic thing that I ever experienced when I see many of the companies that I worked with who actually fell apart was the talent of the people. This was not poor quality people. These were outstanding people that could not outstandingly use their skills. And that was the problem. So where do you pin the blame then? A load of good people. It's a good company. It's still maybe making a profit. And in raw terms, that might be several million or or billion pounds or, or dollars. Do we blame the person at the top or is it more systemic than that? It is slightly more systemic because there is one problem every company faces, which is coming to a clear view on competitive advantage. And I must say that this is no easy matter because the evidence that's gathered shows that you could go one of two or three or four different ways. However, the people issue is strong there. What happens if you get a CEO who's fixated on one way forward? What happens if you get a CEO who is almost bullying the chairman and the board and they give him support but don't allow other opinions to emerge? What happens if you get a chairman who's trying to behave like the CEO instead of providing oversight and providing some sort of guidance? They behave as the one who's driving the company forward. So in reality, what one has is people problems intermingled with systems problems. And the skill is to find out which of these is the relevant concern here in this company today. 
we hear a lot about CEOs at the moment and also about their large pay packets. But I believe you think often it's the chairman who's more important. The chairman role historically was conceived long before the CEO role. The CEO role only became popular in the 1970s with Lee Iacocca and Chrysler and the big slogan, pay me a dollar and I'll turn the company around. All was bonuses and performance. So we had hero CEOs for about 32 years until the dot-com crash. The chairman was 1750. So interestingly enough, historically, the one wise person, that person who gave the oversight, gave the guidance, even gave the moral guidance, was the essence of the British company. And what we're finding now is that the chairman's role is coming back. With all the problems we face, with the competitive nature, with some of the changes we're going through politically, where is that person who steers the whole ship? What is also happening because of the competitive pressures is that the CEO is slowly morphing into the role of chief operating officer. The significance of that is the CEO is being overwhelmed with detail. So standing up and thinking about direction, allowing a conversation to take place, um, giving the mental space to the top team, the executives, to equally have that space to think, is becoming more challenging. We're talking about boards to death here, company boards and the senior team not getting the message. What's an ideal boardroom scenario like? How often should they meet? What should the format of their conversations be? How do you improve the listening process? Funnily enough, um, that's been tried. And how often do we meet? What we found was it makes no difference. Um, we equally found the number of people on a board. If you start getting 15, 16, that does make a difference. But whether it's 7, 8, 9, 10 or 11, doesn't make a difference. What makes a difference is the chairman. So when a chairman basically says, we have a number of legal obligations here and we must see those through and we must make sure the management is complying with those legal obligations, that's one part of board work. The other part of board work is to find out reality. So I've known some outstanding chairmen who hold their board meetings at some substation in the Sahara. Right. Because they want the board to understand what it's like to extract certain minerals and be there all day in that heat and be the manager of all that and deal with all that tension. I found other chairmen would take their board to the mountains of Chile where you have to now get a government contract and it's a really difficult thing to do. So live with some of the people who've got to make that contract work, like building a road through a mountain. That's what makes the difference. It's when the board meets reality. And what about people slightly further down the organisation? I'm sure most of our listeners might have had the example they've been there toiling away all week in an office Friday night. They go down the pub with their colleagues. Everyone's got a view on what the ma what management's doing wrong, where the company should be going next. There's all these ideas. They're sometimes quite negatively expressed, but in that room, they often know a lot of the solutions. How do you get those people to be part of the answer? Well, with some of the talented chairmen, they would uh, require their board members to be there in the pub. Now, they're not going to be there every weekend, once or twice a year, but they listen and they listen to the frustrations, and they try and work through those frustrations to get to the answers, because the answers are often with the people who are at the delivery sharp end. Most boards don't do that, and that's the tragedy. That's the problem. About 20% of the boards across the world, not just British boards, 
do not leave the boardroom. So what you have, instead of having a board meeting which is really looking at the future of the company, you have a committee meeting. You have numbers put in front of you, papers. You discuss, discuss those papers. You come to a conclusion on those papers and you leave. Now, please tell me, how is that a positive contribution? In some of our other episodes, we're talking about issues like diversity in the workplace. And I'm just wondering if there's a bit of a diversity issue for boards. Often it's a job that people do at the end of their career. They might have been a CEO somewhere else first. So they might be a bit older. Um, they might reflect the group, think of numerous organisations. Is there a rejuvenation opportunity for the boards to get younger or more diverse people sitting in them? There is, and it's happening. Um, unfortunately, the media is filled un uh, with the stories of boards that have gone wrong. But boards that you never hear anything about, they are becoming more and more diverse. Uh, gender is part of it. Uh, age is part of it, as is religion and ethnicity. But the real diversity is introducing that new perspective, that challenging point of view, that really sharp conversation that will rejuvenate the board. So if you go into certain boards on certain airlines, why have certain airlines done well and done, not done well? Well, aside from the business reasons, if you look at the board, they had a very interesting board that gave you a completely different perspective of what it meant to fly and trade in Scandinavia, in Africa, in MENA, in the Russias, and you had somebody from the local area who could give you that perspective. So I know one board of an airline that has a Russian TV executive, and you'd ask the question, how can a Russian TV executive contribute to the running of an airline? And the answer is brand in that country. They know how to sell the brand. Right, they know, they know how to sell it. Well, we want to make sure that we give this media here at Leading Edge Podcast a chance to give a fair run to good boards and diverse boards. So let's look at some of the high-profile companies you admire, some of the successes. Tell us about those. I think you've got four of them. Yes, I came across four, and I was very impressed. Uh, Anglo-American is one. Caterpillar is another. Federal Express, the people that transport parcels across the world, and John Lewis. All of them very different markets, very different sectors, but they have one common factor. They have a very, very powerful sense of mission. The values in those companies, the respect uh, uh, that is given to people, the listening capacity is unbelievable. What's also interesting about those companies is that they're not the best payers. Right. So it's not just money that creates high levels of performance. It's the fact that you are doing an outstanding job and the board both polices and supports that. And what's interesting, when people are in the pub or the bar at weekends, Many of them know the board members. So when they make a criticism, this is when it's not venting, it's real. And what's interesting about those companies is that most criticisms are few. A lot of praise is given. Because of the respect for the work and the quality of work, it's outstanding. Which of the weaker companies, unfortunately, the ones that are only following the vision of the CEO. So they're short-term. They're trying to reach short-term targets. One message is given in September, which is we respect people. By the time February comes, we're cutting costs. So these inconsistencies make people feel distinctly vulnerable and unhappy with the company. Very rarely will you find those messages in Caterpillar or the other companies. And when you do, you'll find that at least the workforce has been prepared. You talk about pay, compensation, and people being paid fairly throughout an organisation 
you've got some statistics on the the quite alarming multiples of how much more a CEO is paid versus its lowest paid or average employee and how that varies geographically. Historically, probably going back 20 years, the average difference between the average employee and the average CEO was uh, 15, 18 to 1. Right. The new statistics that are coming out, and most people don't like to admit to them, is about 365 to 1. That's in the UK. In America, it's about 1,000 to 1. So you can see a complete divorce. When I go to California and look at some of the new high-tech companies where we really should not have some of the tensions I'm describing, in some of the companies that you can already see they're going to go bankrupt, what is it that employees tell me? I can't even buy my house and I live in a caravan. And I lost my job because this CEO wants to build an extension to his massive villa. Do I know whether that story is right or wrong? I do not. But it's interesting to see the focus of the people in the company and the distaste they have for highly paid people who seem to pay no respect to lower people in terms of pay, and yet they need them to do the work. If you want service, and if you want care, and if you want long-term employment, and you want to look after communities, you have to invest in them. And that is what John Lewis and the other companies have done. Our question today is... How far can this investment continue when we're facing the sort of economic downturn that we have to face? Is there a bit of a lack of long-term thinking then in companies? One of the examples I think about was reading about Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, uh, and he said that when people say to him, congratulations, Jeff, that was a great quarter, it's he does a bit of a double take because in his mind he's already thinking at least two, three years ahead. In China, sometimes the, the CEO's thinking 100 years ahead. Are they the ones who are going to succeed? It's highly likely. We are facing uh, or building up to a crisis between what we call shareholder finance or shareholder uh, capitalism, which is short term, and what we sometimes call stakeholder, which is much more long-term investment, long-term planning, projects over a longer period, projects that involve communities over a longer period of time. My view is that unless we start begin to think about, which at least Boris Johnson did say he was going to do, long-term projects so that communities improve, so that money circulates, so that companies can make greater profit from that circulation, we're going to face a problem. Imagine for anybody that your year is only three months and you have to close your accounts in three months. What can you invest? You can't. So when Paul and Unilever basically looked astounded, he is astounded. What can anybody invest in Unilever in three months? He has to look two, three years ahead. That's our problem. And it seems that some of the companies that you think are doing well, there is that degree of humility and we're all in it together. Uh, Caterpillar, one of them you mentioned, the management there wearing yellow overalls. Yes, they do. And I was surprised that this was not a gimmick because when I went into the offices, particularly in Singapore, which is one of their biggest regional hubs, their management had in their office the office uh, the, the yellow overall and it was like their suit. They were proud to wear it. They were proud to walk across the grounds, uh, go to various sites with that on. The workforce knew them. They knew them as a person. They knew them as a name, often the first name. So I found that although it looks cheap and perhaps a bit too symbolic, if you live that every day, people appreciate it. And if on top of that, you're not overpaid, 
but other people are equally well paid for the work they do. On top of that, people are well trained. They have a lifelong employment because they feel that the company is making wise investment decisions. The yellow overall then has distinct significance. And let's just take a look at the UK civil service and how they compare. I think you've got a certain degree of admiration for what they can achieve. I do. I do. I didn't start that way. I ended up that way. Um, the Public Administration Select Committee uh, on Constitutional Affairs asked me to go and, and examine the civil service. I got full support from the Cabinet. And I began to look at the question, is the civil service fit for purpose? It took one week to recognise that was the wrong question. The question should have been and became, is government fit for purpose? Because you could not look at the civil service without looking at prime minister, ministers, outsourcing and all the other agencies that work with the civil service. What I found to my amazement was a level of devotion and service to government by British civil servants that I had not seen elsewhere. For certain, nowhere like this in the US or even Australia and New Zealand. And the reason was the belief in representative democracy an utter belief that we're here to serve society. And who was the epitome of representative democracy? The Secretary of State. So the devotion to the Secretary of State was high, but there was tension, and under, an understandable tension. The Secretary of State is standing at the dispatch box and makes a commitment and wants this policy applied as soon as possible. The job of the civil servants is to make it happen. And they begin to look at all the blockages and hurdles that have to be overcome. And they say, Minister, it'll take slightly longer. Yes, Minister. And, and the yes, Minister bit is for the public. It's more often than not, Minister, please rethink. That was the reality of what I saw. Now, there are certain ministers who rethought and rethought sharply. But there were others who were going to use the civil servants as basically whipping boys. For when they were going to get criticised, they were going to pass the blame on to somebody else. And I found that to be really unfortunate. If the most important relationship in government is that between Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer, in other words, CEO and Finance, the second most important relationship is between Secretary of State and the top civil servant, the Permanent Secretary, because it's that relationship that makes policy work. And what about some examples of when it goes well, the sort of Rolls-Royce civil service, which you believe at its best can easily replicate the best of the private sector? It can. And in fact, I would argue that it's better than the best of the private sector. The track record of private sector executives going into the civil service and being successful is not good. And when I looked at it, it wasn't the fact that the civil service was bureaucratic or blocking. It was that those executives were not intellectually up to the challenge of facing really complex problems. But when certain executives did go in, they were outstanding. And the reason was they had a mind of complexity and could find ways through some of the most stretching challenges, emotionally stretching challenges, as well as intellectually stretching challenges. And that is why their Secretary of State valued them. We've talked about boards, why they work and why they don't. What happens when a great leader leaves? And the examples in my mind, we've got Steve Jobs at Apple, who very sadly died, perhaps at the peak of his corporate life, uh, Alex Ferguson as well at Manchester United and the, the fate of the team since then? That's a critical issue. If we just put great leaders aside for one second, the transition from one leader to the next, be you great or not, is about 24 to 36 months. 
before the new individual really stamps their personality, their style, their approach, their philosophy into the company. Now try doing that and following Alex Ferguson, where you have a whole infrastructure called Manchester United, which is almost built around this very successful individual who's built many successful teams. One of the mistakes is to think you're following Alex Ferguson in terms of football. Have you noticed what Manchester United actually do? They sell videos, sweatshirts, books. They sell all financial services. They, have, they grow their own wines. They provide wines. They provide all sorts of other services. They even buy football clubs or have part ownership of football clubs. So Manchester United is a business. And football is part of it, a critical part of it. And as an outsider looking in, I often wonder, what is the business of Manchester United? Is football the branding, the marketing approach to selling all the other bits, or what? Now let's find a manager who's got a mindset, who can integrate football with all that, and have credibility with the board, and has the trust of the board. That's a big challenge. Succession and transition are some of the biggest problems. When I'm called to Germany, it's often for only one reason – succession and transition. The original founder of the mid-sized companies, which are really the making of the German model, economic model, leaves, departs, retires. The sons take over. Which son? Which daughter? Are these people going to bankrupt the company? So many countries have learned to respect succession. It is the major concern of very successful businesses. And what's the best way to approach that? Is it to try and bottle your essence? So this is the Steve Jobs way, this is the Jeff Bezos way at Amazon. Or is it, I think as Steve Jobs said, he doesn't want people to think, what would Steve do? They've got to be their own people when they succeed. And that's what I would recommend too. You will do a little bit of bottling, what made us successful so far. But you must look into the future. And what is it about the future that you can now translate into today's reality in terms of the capabilities we require from our leaders? That analysis is a professional job and unless you undertake it professionally there will be problems so that's the corporate world then andrew and what we want to look at also is your prediction of what you think will be the biggest change to the way we do business by 2030 the uk certainly facing some big challenges in its trading relationships with the rest of the world after brexit i believe you've got some thoughts on how that leaves the state of the eu if boris johnson uh, positions his cabinet and the direction is taken now in the way he has taken it now the eu will be suffering and there's every possibility and i say this with uh with disappointment that the eu may not be here in three to five years the reason is the focus of boris johnson on trade deals is going to expose certain parts of the eu market to vulnerabilities and the vulnerabilities will be political in that country. One of the countries to capitulate will be Germany. And Germany will start giving way to some of the British requirements. So who's going to follow Britain once they see this benefit? Well, the, the uh, biggest trading partner we've got, which is Ireland. So it's going to be very interesting to see what Ireland do. And who's going to follow Ireland? The French right wing. Over 40% of them are waiting to vote to leave the EU. What if they see success in Britain and Ireland? And if you go to some of Macron's comments, they are very favourable about with our British partners, with our British colleagues. These are not the comments of a year ago. These are comments now. 
So if Ireland and France begin to falter, what hope does the EU have? Where do you think the UK will end up? Do you think they'll be aligned to Europe, aligned to the US, somewhere in the middle? They will be aligned to the best trade deals. And I honestly believe, despite the political rhetoric, that is what Boris Johnson will do. He will see each trade deal on its own, for its merits, and will try and get the best. The net sum of all this may have us more aligned to Europe or to the US. But I doubt if that's the intention. The intention is get the best deals, leverage them to get another deal. You don't sound overly concerned about how this may all turn out. Was Brexit something you wanted to happen yourself? I hated it. I didn't want it to happen itself. I am deeply concerned. If Europe is going to fragment, which is very likely because of the way they've been handling their affairs, we all lose out. Britain will benefit, Ireland will benefit, but overall we will not benefit. So I am concerned, but I don't see the mindset shift in Brussels to be able to make and accommodate for some of these challenges that they're going to face. And maybe listening will be one of the solutions. It should be. But I don't think it'll come. At least it won't come quickly enough. Right. So if we can think of a hypothetical scenario now, this is what we call the the dream dinner party. And I'm going to ask you this question. We've asked everybody here on Leading Edge, which three business people, dead or alive, would they bring to this dinner party and why? I find that a very difficult question to answer because often the people that are invited would be much more charismatic than many of the leaders that I rate. Many of the leaders would not be good dinner party colleagues. They would be quiet. They would be a bit humble. They probably wouldn't take that much uh, participation in conversation. They'd more listen to everybody else. Even they could come out as boring until they reach the boardroom. And then they're very different. The one person that I will recommend um, is a Russian. And the only reason I recommend him is I had to work with him. And he turned his company around completely. He's the third richest man in Russia. He probably has the responsibility for over 400,000 jobs and people. And he turned his company to produce the highest quality steel and many other products and no corruption. And who is he? Uh, Alexei Mordyshov. And he was basically a working-class lad who did accounting and worked his way up. No, no privilege, no, no particular favour, all ability, and what's he built around him? An organisation of pure ability. So he's the chairman of Severstal? He's the chairman of Severstal. He's actually, to be honest with you, chairman and chief executive officer. He holds both roles. Um, But his business, which is now, it was originally steel and coal, is now gold, it's health, it's education, it's a whole number of things. And each one with the same diligence and perseverance done well. So, I mean, we've got two spaces left, but what what are you saying? That once you start getting celebrity CEOs, that's too late, that's when companies are finished? I'm really worried about celebrity CEOs. Uh, One particular guideline I have is what is the nature of charisma? And I've come to the conclusion that most of the companies that have failed had very charismatic top leaders. And charisma is slowly becoming the cancer of leadership. I personally hate it. So I much prefer the leader that is deeply aware of all the consequences and circumstances they have to face and have that capacity to listen, but most of all, help other people listen too. It might be the opposite in the political world. We've had the the charisma-free prime ministers we've had in the UK over the last few years haven't done quite so well. 
um, depends on how well they have handled certain issues that they were facing. But certainly, if we look at one or two outstanding prime ministers, if we look at Margaret Thatcher, for example, she had charisma, undoubtedly. But did she know how to use the civil service? She did. Did she know how to listen to different comments? She did. Was she evidence-driven? She was. And I think that probably is one of the secrets for top leadership. You cannot be in touch with everything that's happening around you. So you have to require the people that work with you to bring top quality evidence. And top quality evidence means challenge. Professor Andrew Kakabatsi, it's been a pleasure listening to you and chatting to you today. Thanks very much for coming Thomas, on the podcast. It's mine as well. Thank you very much indeed. Next time on Leading Edge. At IBM, we called them wild ducks. It was that idea that we didn't want people to fit so well. We wanted misfits to create innovation and entrepreneurial behavior. Many people end up going towards entrepreneurial roles if they don't like the constraints of the organizational environment. Leading Edge is a Henley Business School podcast. This episode was written and presented by Thomas Mason. Visit hly.ac slash leadingedge for more.